Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. Today, Paul, we're taking on someone who matters way more than we do. Rick, everybody matters more than we do. <laughs> that's that's true. That's actually very true. Well, and in keeping with our policy of trying not to get sued. Y- you know, Rick, maybe we ought to get an attorney. You know, I tried. None would have. Nobody would talk. Not even lawyers. They've heard the show, right? They they want nothing to do with us. (laughs) So, so that's why we're only saying the person is a writer from a big eastern city newspaper. You, if you can make it, any you'll. Well, here's the city. You can make it anywhere if you can make it there. Oh, that city. Yes, and the paper's name may rhyme with blue dork limes. Boy, that's really. Hard to figure out. Thank you, Rick. Yep, yep, yep. That's us. <laughs> Matt, can you get the attorney on the phone, please? <laughs> and we're bringing it up because the it is the complete textbook on how wine elitists think. And mostly even how they don't understand that they're elitists. Mm. Also today, we have a historic history moment. Listeners ask about Bordeaux blends, why good wine in Europe seems to be less expensive, and what to do when the restaurant server overfills your glass. And as usual, we will make fun of wine snobs, uh, even beyond the blue dork limes. Okay, I can hardly wait. And by the way, we're still on Capital Public Radio podcast lineup. Even despite the fact we have lame jokes for names of uh, other newspapers, uh, Capital Public Radio is Sacramento's NPR stations, and we're even in that special category of Capital Public Radio recommended recommended podcast. That's us, and we are also uh, on Napa Broadcasting, a network that comes out of the August Napa Valley College. That's right, and yeah. so the, the, we are corrupting the minds of students everywhere. Well, the ones that are listening to us, I can't imagine there are too many. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's get, get you a very short bit of background. In the interest of time and my own intellectual shortcomings, I'm going to simplify. Because you don't know another way. All I have is simplicity, Paul. <laughs> I, I am the essence you are, you of simplicity. You are simple, Rick. <laughs> that is that. All right. So there was a book that was recently released named Cork, Cork Dork. Right. It's written by Bianca Bosker, and it's a pretty entertaining read about her discovering wine and the wine industry. She kind of hangs out with some people who are studying to be advanced master sommeliers and kind of figures out how they do things and what they do and all the rest. And she also goes over and talks to some folks in the industry and, I mean, in, in the wine business the, the, you know, that make wine, big companies and all. And uh, Ms. Bosker is a good writer and uh, it really is an entertaining book. And she wrote a piece in the New York Times that basically said, stop hating on big commercial wines. Right. She said, those are the supermarket wines that the very vast majority of Americans drink and can't afford. And, and to be fair, this article was a, an excerpt of a much larger book in which she addressed a topic in considerable more in considerably more detail right. and Absolutely. much more nuanced approach than just go drink big commercial wines. Right. But in short, she said, yeah, they use some technology. They farm large vineyards. But the result is wine that lots of people like. And and defect-free wine. A defect-free wine. That's right. She says way more people like those wines, really, than the other any other kind of wine. And basically said, can't we all just drink what we like? And can't we all just get along? Apparently not. Well, as reasonable as that sounds, Paul, <laughs> the wine elitists who earn a living by being elitists jumped all over her for being nice to wine companies that earn their own livings by not being elitists. Right. <laughs> so the complainers are all the usual suspects, of course. Well, you know, part of the part of the problem here is that you've got wineries that make wines because that's what people want to drink. And then the the very high end wine critic says, yeah, but they shouldn't want to drink those. And, right. And right. that's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because that's what they want to drink. And What's interesting is music critics don't do this, do they, Rick? No, music they do not. critics don't tell you that you shouldn't like the music you like. They just 
write about the music they explain they like. it they tell where it comes from they and they let they, it go they'll give you they'll, yeah 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 so after all that the, the that's when the blue dork limes wine writer who uh-huh. is one of the most respected wine people in america stepped in to say well the elitists are right and and bianca is a horrible person i i believe that's a relative paraphrase there he didn't actually say that no no he didn't he didn't say anything bad about her at all but he did disagree <laughs> with her um, and he did say no we shouldn't all get along and we should hate on all those wines that everybody else loves and he also said wine critics should not write about them just the opposite of those music critics yeah yeah or television critics right? right let's write about the television show that nobody's ever seen because that will be really interesting meanwhile the most popular show on television let's not write about that because everybody likes it and right that's your, a weird philosophy to have your job as a critic is to be a guide and to help people understand it and to explain it the new yorker one of the most respected literary magazines in america they write about star trek yes they do and you know and you and, would know because rick right now is wearing a vulcan I've, Yes, I got ears, my ears. A set of Vulcan ears. I think, I think it makes me look distinguished. <laughs> well, yeah. that's one way yes. of thinking so, about it. So, the, the, so <laughs> one of the problems with this piece, but it's also this notion that we, which the elitists don't even understand they're being elitist, but it was, it was the tone was also superior and unforgiving of anyone not like him. Right. And it was way too typical of wine people removed from the the real world. Listen to his, I'm making air quotes now over the term fair description of Miss Bosker's argument. He says, she made the case that wine lovers should not shun, should, she made the case that wine lovers should not shun processed wines, products made of industrially farmed grapes, which are manipulated and tailored to fit predetermined specifications based on audience research. So, first of all, he's saying is that you should shun those wines. Right. He calls them processed wines, which right. is his own. How does he think movies are made? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Because you know that any number of movies are made with showing a, 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 an advanced version to the audience and seeing how they like the ending. And if they don't like the ending, they change the ending. Isn't that, is that any different? Uh, I've, I've heard that happen more than once. And, you know, so what he's saying is that wineries should just take a gander, take a shot. The big companies, little companies, doesn't matter. Take a shot. They should not grow many grapes because you can't have industrial farms, which he doesn't really explain. But apparently if you use a tractor, that's an industrial farm. <laughs> um, and then you should just put a wine out there. And if you go out of business, so what? Right. Yeah. It, it, is all, it is always interesting to me that the people often who have the strongest opinions about this have never once put a penny into the game. Yeah. And that's to me, you know, I've my career has been advising companies that have already made the the leap of investing right. either a huge amount of money or in some cases for families their entire future financial stability in a project. Well, and then to be told, oh, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. You should do it to make the wines that I like, even though the people who are walking in your tasting room have already told you they like the wines that you're making now. That's a pretty crazy idea. Yeah. Well, and um, many of the, that ilk, including wine critics in particular, who gets wines shipped to them by the case, never, never bought actually, a bottle of wine. Never bought a lives. bottle of wine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Maybe one bottle, you know, one time. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. but the logic of his argument is really not logical. That's what happens when you only see what you want to see. The the Blue Dork Limes writer says she argued that applying technology to wine has dem- democratized it by improving its quantity quality and making it what she called good wine accessible to more people at lower prices. So wait a minute. Applying technology to wine makes the general quality of wine better, and that's a bad thing. 
according to the Blue Blue Dork Limes okay. uh, writer. Yeah. And the fact that people want to drink good wine without outstanding defects makes them tasteless and and incurious rather than simply maybe not want maybe thinking that wine is not the biggest single element of my life I really just want well, a damn glass yeah, from right. time to yeah, time yeah. I'm having a burger tonight and I don't need a lecture about which wine to drink when I'm opening the bottle right he goes on a rant against Additives and manipulation. But I love this line. Uh, this is the quote. Additives and manipulation did not improve the general level of wine. Science did. Anyway, aren't those <laughs> and, things science? And who developed the additives and the manipulation and the understanding of all of that stuff? Yeah, I think that would have been science. That would and, have been you know, science. But refrigeration is okay, but it, that that would sort of be science. I mean, oh boy. A, a, was it ever. manipulation too, was it right? Ever. right? You ever, you're, now we're, you're manipulating the fermentation Yeah, but that's been by, done for a while, so, so that's okay. okay. Yeah, oh, I, I always remember a dear friend of mine who makes wine in Italy. He's a brilliant man and a wonderful philosopher as well as a winemaker. And he always used to say, Paul, a tradition is just an innovation that was a really good idea. And I wonder 100 years from now if people aren't going to look back at some of what we are hearing here as horrible innovations that have destroyed the integrity of wine, and they'll be the traditional way right, of right. making wine. Well, he, he gets to that at one point because he does say that the old world had the advantage of centuries of localized efforts can offer hundreds of different wines produced by heritage and tradition that are far more, far more honest expressions of culture than any imitation Napa Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. That individual creations of culture, but sometimes you just want a damn glass of wine. Well, he's also saying we should only be drinking wines that have been around for hundreds of years. So, well, you, Rick, wines in your house don't last twenty-four no, hours. But I'm saying wineries. So <laughs> none of these wines are going to get to be hundreds of years old That's if we right. don't buy their wines. If you don't buy their wines, yeah, you also, you know, and but this is where we start to see the this is the, the removal of the from the real world. It says the notion that manipulating cheap wine to mimic high-end bottles benefits consumers is laughable. That's him saying this. Hmm. Imitation high-end wines may satisfy many people, but they are commodities. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Yes, they are. There's right. no question yeah. about it. He's so, right. So it's bad that they satisfy and, many and people. And you know what? And people make commodities because they sell. And yeah. the way you make money in business is you sell things and you get paid for them and you're in business another year. Sounds like a plan to me. Now, I don't own a winery, but then neither does he. And I'm a little hesitant to judge people who own wineries based on the stylistic decisions they make if their wine is selling. If their wine isn't selling, that's when I as a consultant step in and say, you know, maybe we ought to think about the kind of wine you're making because maybe people don't want to drink that. Right. That's the big question. Yep. Well, so two more points uh, here, and then uh, we'll we'll finally move along because I'm really just now. Um, You're just getting all warm. Exor- You're getting all exorcising hot and my demons here. Right. What's the quickest way to cool down a, an unhappy radio podcast person? Uh, a, a put your head in a bucket of ice. <laughs> uh, was, that was from another show. <laughs> uh, all right, um, but he so he's saying you shouldn't drink those wines. You. you uh, Cheap good wine, which may take a bit of effort to find and which is marginally more expensive, would be a far better on-ramp for future wine lovers. He's talking about these wines from small places, small towns sure. in Europe. I understand. Which yeah. are, And he's right. They're hard to find. And one of the challenges in the world of wine is that those people in Europe would love to sell to America, but they have a total of 300 cases to right. sell to America. And you know what? And if they had more, uh, he wouldn't allow, allow us to well, drink then, them. Well, then they'd be big commercial wineries. Right. Then that so, wouldn't work. Well, and, and this and this misses this first off marginally more expensive. Yeah, this guy is the guy not buying a whole lot of wine. <laughs> um, but also, you know, the mom with kids in town 
hoe, and it's right. 5 Work, o'clock on a Tuesday. Working and she, her way through the supermarket. What she wants is a bottle of wine, and she wants to know it's good. So right. she's going to reach for that bottle of wine that she had the last time, right. and she wants it to taste the same. Right. And it is a commodity, just like her cereal and yep. her bread and all those yep. other things, and that yep. is totally okay. And that is the foundation of the financial picture of the wine industry right, right there. Right. Absolutely. And, and there's nowhere to go for that person, even if she did live in the lovely town of Blue Dork, she would not be able to just <laughs> well, she couldn't she do take, it in a supermarket she, because you can't sell wine in a supermarket yeah, and in you, Blue Dork. It's true. And, but she can't take her kids into the bottle shop. Right. So, um, so the last thing is, he said... Uh, Are we still on this guy? One more. Okay. Uh, he, was, he was asked, what if those very scarce and very, very expensive great wines of the world could be duplicated in quantity so regular people could taste them? Yeah. The Blue Dork Limes writer says, it would be horrible. Yes, wines that few people are able to taste would instead be widely available or their complexity sampled by many rather than a privileged few. Yet, such reproductions would completely change the experience. So, Rick, I have, I have a couple of examples here that show how ridiculous that statement is, which is you may not remember this because you weren't around then, but I was. When people first started recording music, the argument was that making recordings of great artists singing and or playing music was an absolute travesty and took away from and ruined the experience for those who wanted to go hear those people live. Right. And yes, did it make the fact that millions of people could hear Caruso that never heard him before? But that was a corruption. Not only were you around for that, by the way, Paul, <laughs> you were around when people first started writing on cave walls. <laughs> but I love this guy that says, no. It should be really hard to get. And this is coming from one of the most privileged people on earth when it comes to sampling wines. You know, so only right. I should taste it he because I should them. get to have my good experience. So and I'm going to say it one more time. This is this is this uh, completely being divorced from reality. That's what mm. this was all about. Speaking of being divorced from reality. Have you ever been divorced? You haven't been divorced, though. Well, from reality, I have. Okay, there you go. Uh, but, okay, but, good. But with a total disconnection to reality, I think it's time for us to answer some questions. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. All right. Uh, thank you for listening to Ball Talk and for li- letting me rant. Um, it is time for some questions. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. So this one is from Eric Pettit. Uh-huh. He, um, he didn't give us a city. He did give he us the last name. He probably didn't want to know. We, uh, he's trying to keep a low profile I here. Can't, can you blame him? Um, and so, and anyway, Eric asks, uh, why is American wine, <laughs> this is interesting, yes. so why is American wine so much more expensive than a European wine? What a coincidence. Yeah. That plays right on the question we were just talking about. He says, he says, in France, I can buy a good Sancerre, which is a Sauvignon Blanc, but folks don't know that, uh, for nine euros, which is about 10 bucks, or a Crianza Rioja for seven euros, uh, which is about a little bit under eight. In the U.S., it's hard to find a decent red wine made in California for less than 20. Wineries tell me they would be losing money if they sold it for any less. Are the French losing money? Is it becoming? Is it because they get paid less, use less technology, have a shorter chain of distribution? Uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, yes. Uh, one of them is many of those wineries were paid for by their great-grandparents, so they've got no capital overhead, so that helps. Um, and And the, basically, it, I would take a giant step back and say when people start thinking about opening a winery in America, one of the questions they ask is, can I actually make a profit making wine in America? So they create a business plan that says, if I make this much wine and I sell it for this, many bo- this much a bottle, I think I can actually keep my head above water. 
In fact, in Europe, that number is lower, but often because some of particularly the smaller wineries in Europe are not the sole source of income for those people. Right, right, so right, right. Some of them are either hobbies or extensions of other business. Uh, often it's extensions of other farming. The other thing is that they've owned the property for years and years and years. Many people in the new world have bought their land more recently. They paid more money for it, so they've got higher expenses. But the real reason that wine in America is more expensive than wine in Europe is because it is made and priced to be competitive here. One of the reasons that European wines can ship to America and still be competitive is they are in a much more competitive environment at their level. Now, you can buy wine in America for $7 a bottle or $6 a bottle or four bottles. But the Blue Dork Limes wouldn't like it. Well, they wouldn't like it. But at the same time, you and I, Rick, both know there have been wine competitions where a two, three, four, five dollar bottle of wine won a gold medal against some really right. good competition. So when he says you have to spend $20 to get a good bottle of wine from California, he's not actually being accurate. What he's saying is he feels right. that to buy anything well, less than $20 in California means he's buying something less than a good wine. Well, but in I fact, you and another, I both know that it's not There's another part to true. this, too. I think what he's thinking, too, and it sounds like um, is he's talking about buying it from a small winery. Right. And so, you know, I get my small wine in Europe, I get my small wine in the U.S. But in, in, you know, so he he is right about all those questions. And one of the things is like the distribution chain is is way different here. Yes. They don't have a three-tier system for starters. Right. And but often— Three tiers means three markets. Yeah, yeah, they have to—right. You have to sell to a distributor who sells it to the actual store. Um, And But also a lot of the smaller wineries really work very locally. They mm-hmm. sell, re- re- you know, where it right. is, you know, because of for many, many reasons. And so, you know, it's always surprising for folks that go to the foothills or um, the small wineries, you know, sometimes along the coast where they think, well, these are little guys. It'll be less expensive. And the, and many of the wines really do start in that high teens and low 20s because that's amortizing their costs because right. they have so much more to deal with. So, so there's a, there's a whole lot of reasons, but um, if you do, if you did like uh, what did the Blue Dork Limes writers say, a manipulated, processed, um, whatever. If wine, if you close your close your eyes and drink some of those wines that are under twenty bucks, you, you might find you actually like America. So, in any case, okay, this one is from uh, our loyal listener Tracy in Sacramento. Oh, good. Uh, she says, here's something that happens too often. I order a glass of wine. The server fills the glass most of the way up. Yep. Among, among other things, I want room to swirl. What should I do when that happens? Uh, I have the perfect solution. Spill it on the server and ask for another bottle? No, I just asked them if they could bring me a second glass. Not of wine, an empty glass. And But you, I think you should tell them why. Well, but here's here's the thing. Restaurants have learned that when some diners order a glass of wine— they want the glass to within a three-quarters of an inch of the lip. They want it full. So the restaurants fill it up to that point. Now, those of us who enjoy swirling and sniffing and doing all those weird or things— Or not spilling. We like to have a little room to swirl the glass around. So in that case, I just say, could you—thank uh, you for the wine. Could you bring me an empty wine well, glass? I, well, and I just pour some of it into the other glass? This is unusual because usually you're the mean one. But in this case, I uh, would be less nice because often what they're doing is they're pouring that to, to, to get you get, empty that bottle so you'll order another one. And so you well, know, no, that, that's the, but, that's but, the but, empty the bottle pour. Oh, you know, but see, I'm understanding her as having—no, she says when I order a glass of wine. She's not ordering. No, well, no, she, uh, she, uh, the, uh, order a glass of wine. I, I think she's talking about the bottle. I don't uh, think you know, so. No, you're getting the. Um, I just think this is the wine by the glass. Well, if that's the case. 
that if that's the case, so then they should get a bigger blast because you do want. They're trying are, are to be nice. Are you recognizing that I'm right and you're wrong? I, about um, this no. <laughs> <laughs> the, inf- the information that you are giving may be more correct than my information. <laughs> I am not, however, conceding any rightness to you, Paul. <laughs> so if it's by the glass, yes. Okay, by I, the absolutely, glass. I, I absolutely. I absolutely. And it then is, I just yeah. ask for another glass. Yeah. If it's the bottle, and they do that, that's then when, you're yeah. absolutely right. Then what you, they're really doing is they're trying to top heck. the glasses up, and you just need to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm pretty good as a waiter pours into the glass. I'm pretty good at just holding my hand out and saying, stop. Don't Um, pour any more wine in that glass. Yes. I'll Uh, get some more later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, you know, if we're ordering by the glass, we want volume. I'd say give me two extra glasses because I want to fill them all up. (laughs) All right. That is it for questions. For now, we'll have more in a minute. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Up next, we have a historic history moment. Hit it, trumpet team. Oh, yeah. Ah, such such a joyful tone. Those guys such, are good. And such they, harmonies. You know we haven't seen them for a while, and they haven't lost a thing. They have not lost a step. That is totally That's true. That's right. All right. Yep. Uh, well, we've been doing horrible wine writing the entire first start, start of the show, so I thought we'd do some history today. Well, I thought I'd talk about a wonderful old—if those of you who are my age or older remember that we used to make a wine in California called Johannesburg Riesling. And it wasn't really— Johannesburg Riesling. It was really just Riesling. But it was called Johannesburg Riesling because the most famous place in Germany, the home of Riesling, the most famous place to grow Riesling was an old castle called a Schloss, and it was called Schloss Johannesburg. So Americans growing Riesling here wanted to bring to mind that great old castle in Germany where the greatest Rieslings in the world were made, and so they called it Johannesburg Riesling. You can't do that anymore. You just got to call it Riesling. But the cool story is how the Germans, eventually the, the legend of how they started making really sweet, luscious dessert wines out of Riesling. Which has a cool name, and Paul? It is called the Trockenbären Auslese wine. And it means, uh, it actually describes the wine pretty well. It's perfect. It, yeah, yeah. It, Trocken it, means dry. Baron means berry, so dry berry. Auslese means selected, so they were literally picking this grape dry berry by dry berry. At the end of harvest, they were almost raisins, and then they would make this into a wine that's luscious, sweet, delicious, yummy, yummy, yummy. And it is. And, you know, that is one of the great things about Rieslings is that as— Older, old, of all of the whites, older Rieslings start to develop uh, such, you know, even Amazing. whether they had yeah. hang time or been sitting around, they have all kinds of new nuances and character yeah. and they're, they're, so the and way, they're yummy. So the way they started making these dessert wines, the legend is that the greatest vineyard in Schloss Johannesburg actually was picked when the local bishop sent word that it was time to pick the grapes. Uh, and he sent the messenger sent because smoke? it was time. No, no, he had. He sent a messenger, uh, and the messenger from the bishop's palace came running to the castle, but he got delayed by a couple of weeks. Not sure if maybe there was a war in between, or maybe he just stopped to have a nice beer and forgot what day it was. But he showed up about two to three weeks late, and all of a sudden, the people who were making the grapes looked out, and they were no longer fat, juicy grapes. There were these shriveled, tiny, little raisiny kinds of grapes, but they thought the bishop said, it's time to pick. It's time to pick. And they made the wine, and that is how those great dessert wines from Germany were invented. At least that's the story. Next time I'm late for a job, I'll just say, well, you know, I just thought this 
job should sit longer. You'll and have to show up all wrinkled and dried up and raisiny. I've I've been called that. Before, so. <laughs> well, mine is a uh, mine and is sweet. Mine, mine were, yes, uh, mine, mine were moving to the Middle East for mine. Uh, it was okay, one of the, the worst East. places of mine. The Israeli and. Antiquities Authority, um, they raided some thieves and they found a 7th century B.C. scroll. So now we're talking uh-huh. 2,700 years, 20, yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, 2,800, actually. Um, hmm. uh, from caves in the Judean de- desert, and it was a papyrus document that was a royal order for two jars of wine from the king's maidservant in Jerusalem. So this is cool. a cool thing for a couple of reasons, because one, it's one of the earliest sources outside the Bible, pre-Bible, to mention Jerusalem in, in Hebrew writing. It just mm-hmm. gives it a sense of what was going yeah. on back then. But it also, for wine people, it's yet more evidence that the wine trade was a pretty big thing oh, yeah. thousands of years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The funny yeah. thing here is the Blue Dork Limes said, since they can't identify the producer as a small impossible to get winery, they weren't going to write about this. <laughs> the he, other, the other, he fun, didn't say he that. Did not. Okay. The other fun <laughs> thing is that researchers at the Israeli Antiquities Authority have, they are planning to recreate some wines served during the uh, Byzantine Empire because they found some dried grape seeds that estimated to be about. 1,500 years old, so they're going to take those and take basically those, turn those into the grapes and then make wine out of them. But the, will they use any commercial? Well, ad- the Blue Dork Lime says it's manipulated. So manipulated. They they're yeah, not writing re- about okay. that one either. Well, yeah. yeah. All right. Very funny. Well, we got time You're for not going to give up on that guy, are you? Yeah. No, I probably not. Uh, all right. We have time for one more question. Um, this okay. one is from Lisa in Morgan Hill, and she says, what exactly is a Bordeaux blend? I'm glad that we actually got this question because, you know, it's a, it's a question that comes up in conversation a lot. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, she says, what exactly is a Bordeaux blend? Okay. I hear the name used all the time. Is Cab Bordeaux blend? Does it mean it's made in Bordeaux? Are there certain percentages that it has to have? Okay. So uh, you want me to answer all of those? No. Oh, darn. One at a time. One at a time. Okay. A Bordeaux blend is a blend of wine, red wine, and it is a Bordeaux blend, meaning that it is made from the five traditional red grape varietals in Bordeaux. Which most folks know, which are Cabernet, Merlot. Not, most people don't know them. I, I, no, no, the grapes. They don't know that the five of them. The it's five ca- of them are Cabernet Sauvignon. Merlot. Cabernet Franc. I was going Merlot. Merlot. Cabernet Franc. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead, Paul. Just list them. <laughs> okay. Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot. And then you've got the two sort of unusual ones that we rarely grow in the United States, Petit Verdot and Malbec. the one that's quite rare, in, even in Bordeaux now, but is grown in Argentina, is Malbec. Yeah. A lot of folks don't know uh, think of Malbec as a uh, Bordeaux grape. It was a blending grape until it got to uh, Argentina and actually And there are places changed. in France where it is grown. So. Yeah, a place called Cohors is one. But so, in any case, those grapes, yes. And it doesn't mean that it was made in Bordeaux. It just means that it's made from those five grape varieties. Right. It's and like then, we, they often, as in... Uh, just as by comparison, lots of people talk about Pinot Noir as a Burgundy. Uh, right. you know, is, yeah, but, I, I like Burgundy, so but, it's really talking about Pinot. But Burgundy is not a blend. Burgundy is 100% no, just, Pinot Noir. Bordeaux is I was always using a blend. The, I was using the regional reference. Okay. And then there are no specific percentages. In fact, one of the things that makes Bordeaux rather charming is that each chateau has its own vineyard, and its own vineyard is planted to certain varieties. And depending on what gets ripe in what year and how perfect it is, the the actual blend of the wine will change from year to year based on what's tasting best. And so the concept of a Bordeaux blend is not that it should taste like one grape or another, but it should have a sort of a house style that combines these grapes in a way that makes a consistent wine. And so for America, we use all these Bordeaux grapes, two in particular, which is Cabin Merlot, as right. their own wines. They need right. to be at least... 
75% for the right, wine to, to be, be that, that. Yeah. they don't need to have other Bordeaux grapes in them unless they want to be called a Bordeaux blend, and then right. they do. Well, but, but you can actually, also call to, your wine. Well, actually, you're right, because lots of folks don't. You they, don't need all five. Because there's no rules. No. The, so you, as no, long no. as it's a blend of any of those five grapes, you could make a wine of Petit Verdot and Malbec and call it well, a Bordeaux blend. It'd be a pretty odd Right, blend, and actually but. many of those blends in Bordeaux don't use all five grapes. What I'm saying right. is that in some cases, actually, people call their wines a Bordeaux blend and one of the grapes may not be a Bordeaux, one of the Bordeaux grapes. Yeah, but generally, it's, what we, it's generally what we mean is they're, they're using some version of those grapes. Yep. So, um, and, it, and in Bordeaux, they don't call it a Bordeaux blend. It's just a Bordeaux. It's just a Bordeaux. Because they're all blends. Yes. All right. Yep. Uh, I don't know that we actually uh, uh, answered that well, and I think that was my fault. Usually it's yours, but um, in this case, I'm taking, I'm fully taking the blame. Okay, good. I'm taking the blame for this entire episode, actually. It's just me acting out. You know, the problem is that, Rick, you've been processed, you've been mechanized, yes. and you're just a commodity. I, I, I've, it's, I've, all, I've been mechanically farmed, too. All right. That is it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our producer is Matt Bassini. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for putting up with us, Matt. <laughs> Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use and for including us on their podcast lineup. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickpawine.com. Thank you, Napa Broadcasting, for letting us darken your door as well. And if you learned anything today, we hope it's just enjoy wine for whatever reasons you want to. And also, Blue Dork Limes isn't a very good fake name, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Thank you.